1: Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Posse of the People. Now, today we have Valerie Jarrett, the former senior advisor to the president, and RT Ryback, the former mayor of Minneapolis. Excited to talk to both of them. And then, as you know, the news with me, Clint, Brittany, and Sam. We also have Andy Slavitt uh, giving us an update on where we are with healthcare. Before we jump into the podcast today, I've heard people say over and over on panels and speeches, uh, this notion that the system is working as it was designed to. And they say it often in response to a tragedy, in response to deep inequity. And while uh, it is true that the system was designed to be one that disadvantaged a certain set of people over... Another one, what I also know to be true is that we can change it, that people made the system this way and people can undo it. People can uh, transform it. They can reform it. They can uh, structurally alter it. Like We actually have a lot of agency here. So just because it was designed this way doesn't mean that it has to be this way forever. And my advice to you would be to definitely understand the intentional uh, parts of the system, the things that didn't happen by happenstance, Uh, But also to remember that we can do this, that we can change. It won't always be quick. You might not be here when the fruits of your labor actually impact people's lives in a positive way. Uh, But that we fight because we know that this is not the way the world has to be. We educate ourselves because we know that we need to be as skilled as possible as we do the work of imagining a new future. Let's go. So this is the news with me, Sam, your favorite data scientist, Brittany, former Appointee to, to the President's Task Force on 21st Century Policing and uh, former educator, a member of the Ferguson Commission. And then Clint Smith III, uh, your favorite doctoral student and the resident academic here on Potsy of the People.
2: Hey, everyone. It's the news. This is Brittany, Miss Pacchetti uh, on all social media.
3: What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith, uh, Clint Smith III, Clint Smith III on Twitter
1: and
4: Instagram.
3: This is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter.
1: This is DeRay, DeRay on Twitter. Sam? Okay, so my piece of news is
4: uh, in Baltimore, uh, the mayor, Catherine Pugh, along with the police chief and other city leaders, proposed a mandatory one-year sentence for illegal gun possession within 100 yards of a school, park, church, public building, or other public place of assembly in the city of Baltimore. Uh, And I'm going to just read the quote from Mayor Pugh. She said that there is a church or school on nearly every corner in the city, and as it relates to this legislation, she says that's a good thing. So in other words, particularly in Black neighborhoods in Baltimore, pretty much the entire neighborhood now is going to be under this cloud of a mandatory one-year sentence if you're caught uh, in possession of an illegal firearm. And I bring that to this conversation because uh, oftentimes you know, on the left, when we talk about guns and gun violence... Um, the immediate sort of reaction and you know, recommendation or solution that's proposed uh, are these gun control measures that um, in some cases, you know whether it's the assault weapons ban or or this proposal from Mayor Pugh, uh, increases criminal penalties on, on people uh, who are caught in possession of illegal firearms. Uh, and disproportionately, those people end up being Black. And so uh, I wanted to have this conversation about how we can address guns without actually leading to accelerating mass incarceration, particularly for black folks.
1: And what this makes me think of, Sam, too, is, you know, mandatory minimums came in the era of the war on drugs uh, for so many people in the crime bill. And it makes you think about drug-free school zones that also came in the era of the war on drugs. And what they did is similar to this bill is that they criminalized, they hyper-criminalized things that happened in proximity to school. So in a lot of states around the country, it was if you were a thousand feet within a uh, school and you sold drugs or whatever, the, the penalty was increased. And what that had the impact of doing was A, not decreasing crime, not decreasing drugs, but increasing how many people were criminalized in cities like Baltimore, cities across the country when there are schools literally in every single neighborhood. A thousand feet is actually a lot of space. So you've just casted a net over low-income neighborhoods uh, in a way that the data is actually proven does not lead to the desired result that people claim that they're putting these things in place for. I think it does help Uh, The public feel like something is happening. So like in absence of the uh, plan around safety, right, we know that making sure that people have access to jobs, uh, making sure that people have education and resources is actually something that can decrease crime. Uh, But in the absence of a plan that gets us there, like things like mandatory minimums, things like drug free school zones sound like fixes, even if the outcome doesn't lead to them.
3: And something that this makes me think about is uh, this book, Ghetto Side, uh, by Jill Leovia, I believe is how you pronounce her name. And essentially, the argument of the book, she's a reporter out of L.A., and she talks about uh, the the incredibly high homicide rates um, in Los Angeles, and and she's uh, reported on that for many, many years. And what she finds is that what happens is that part of the reason the homicide rates are so high uh, is because while we often have this discourse of policing in Black communities being one of over-policing, uh, in some ways, actually what happens in Black communities is this idea of under-policing uh, because so many of these things are going unsolved. And so what happens is that communities and, and gangs and the people engaged in violence in these communities feel like they have to take uh, take measures upon themselves in order to get some sort of uh, retribution of sort of justice for, for things that have been done against them, because the police in these communities, uh, deprioritize the lives of black folks in ways that they would never for more affluent white communities. Right.
2: So another piece of news that I think is really important to pay attention to, um, that I didn't know was that 2016 was in fact the deadliest year for environmental activists around the world. On average, there were four land activists killed in each week of 2016. Um, Like I said, making it the bloodiest year on record. The Guardian, in partnership with an organization called Global Witness, which is a human rights watchdog group, um, have partnered to be tracking um, these deaths. um, And they simply amount to um, uh, police repression, uh, activist repression, um, and murder because people are standing up to defend um, their culture, standing up to defend natural resources, standing up to defend the survival of their people and of their country, um, and to ensure that, that this world can continue to feed its children.
3: And I think this is really important because what we know to be true is that you can't disentangle the conversation around environmental justice from the sort of contemporary debates around public policy that we have. And I'm thinking specifically about the current health care bill that you know, at the moment might look like it's dead, but with Mitch McConnell, you, uh, you're you never sure. And as long as the Republicans have both the House and the Senate, we have to continue to be wary. Uh, but, you know, we can't have conversations about pre-existing conditions without also talking about the conditions in Black and Brown and poor communities that lead to people having certain medical conditions in the first place. And that oftentimes a lot of these uh, the sort of disparate health outcomes that we see between uh, Black folks and Brown folks and poor folks um, and their white counterparts is is based on the environmental conditions in which people live. And so I think it's important that we continue to hold those two things together uh, as we consider the sort of contemporary political debate around our healthcare system. You
4: know, it reminds me of the fact that, you know, as we're talking about people defending the environment and, and the people whose lands, you know, these these have always been, right, indigenous peoples, um, and how many things we still, you know, in terms of Western culture um, you know, still doesn't understand and, and still could learn from so many people from the biodiversity, you know, in the Amazon and so many areas across the world. Um, and that that's all getting sort of cleared away and destroyed um, for, you know, the corporate profits and for powering sort of this, this engine um, that is, in, in fact, polluting um, much of the earth. And so, like, how do we uh, continue to defend and, and stand up for people who are on the front lines, protecting the environment, protecting indigenous groups, um, whose lands these are, because we need to actually, you know, there's so much we can learn in terms of curing diseases, in terms of so many other uh, you know, ways of life and, and interacting and, and culture and language. And so you know, all of that is so essential. Um, and you never know, you know how, when that is actually going to come into play and be so essential you know, if something ever happens. Um, so I think, you know, it's incredibly important the work that, that they're doing and the sacrifice that they're making.
1: It does also remind me that there are people all across the world working on a set of issues around equity uh, that don't make the mainstream. And I think about for so many people, it wasn't until uh, the pipeline protests and no doubtful protests here in in America that people started to understand Latin activism in, in the popular media. Uh, but but this work has been going on across the world for a long time, uh, and Brittany, I hadn't I had, didn't know that this was the deadliest year for for these activists because we had been sort of head down focusing on criminal justice issues. But like you said, Sam, all of this stuff is intertwined.
3: So last week, uh, David Brooks wrote a column for the New York Times called "How We Are Ruining America," uh, and I'm not going to summarize the whole thing. Uh, you can read it. Um, just Google "how how we are ruining America," it'll come up. But Uh, Essentially, you know, what it brought up in the sort of social media conversation was this discussion on cultural capital. And while I think that in the piece Brooks is missing a few essential tenets, uh, specifically the role that race plays in shaping uh, cultural capital and who has access or doesn't have access to certain forms of capital. um, Part of the, the discourse I found really interesting because it reminded me that we often have a very singular way of defining what constitutes as cultural capital. So for instance, this idea that uh, someone going to a museum or listening to classical music or eating a certain type of food or being able to pronounce certain types of words denotes a level of sophistication and a level of of education that gives them access to certain parts of society that then reinforce uh, existing structural uh, pieces of, of our world that exacerbate social stratification. There's a researcher um, who was formerly in Stanford. I think she's in Berkeley now, but Prudence Carter wrote a book in 2005 called Keeping It Real. And in it, she talks about this idea of non-dominant cultural capital, right? That for a lot of black and brown young people, uh, this them not being able to demonstrate uh, the sort of fluidity in certain uh, ways of being that that might denote for some people what it means to have access to cultural capital doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have cultural capital right and so she's arguing essentially that in certain communities and in certain contexts one needs a certain type of capital to navigate that space that they might not need in another space so if you grow up in a community that is deeply impoverished if you grow in a community up in a community that is uh, doesn't have uh, a myriad of different, resources or a, or a social welfare infrastructure uh, there are ways of navigating that space and there are ways of being in the world that are necessary for your in order to protect you in order to survive literally um, that you developed over years and years uh, that it that in that context are types of cultural capital right what she's saying is that what we need to do um, is not say hey black and brown kids you need to stop acting this way and start acting this way or or release, you know, let go of these parts of your lives in order to have access to these things that will create upward mobility for you in your life and your career. Uh, what we need to do is teach young people how to hold both of those two things at once, right? Like to reckon, And essentially it's code switching, right? And And essentially how can we teach young people to uh, to recognize that in certain contexts, there are certain ways of being that are appropriate for those contexts and in other ways um, that are appropriate for a different context. Yeah, I think it, you
4: know, it is fascinating, Clint, because in many ways, what we see is that that cultural capital, um, particularly in Black communities, ends up being so powerful, right? Not only as a um, sort of cultural force, but also as an economic force. And then when you look at you know, where the money goes, Oftentimes, that money is not going to Black communities, right? So the the cultures that you know we spread all across the world, um, oftentimes you know don't result in folks who created um, who created that culture really reaping the the benefits from it, right? So we have to have these conversations about cultural appropriation, about uh, even you know there was an article I read uh, a while back on uh, intellectual property law uh, and how you know in many ways the law is structured. Uh, in a way that makes it harder for people to actually um, get the the money that they deserve for for inventing incredible you know ways of speaking, incredible ways of interacting, new dances, new new cult- pieces of culture that end up being um, huge, right? Huge money makers that end up circling the world. And so I think that is um, that is something that we need to figure out how to actually change those systems and structures. Uh, so that people are rewarded for the ways in which they produce culture, even if that culture is not deemed sort of the normative cultural capital um, that some folks are used to.
2: This reminds me of the conversation that was happening um, in in content creation spaces, spaces when Vine was shut down, right? I mean, in a, in a much um, kind of more contemporary, simple example of what you're talking about, here are content creators, who are um, creating things that go viral, right? Like we didn't even use that word in this way um, to describe uh, content that that became very popular on the internet.
1: The other thing too that it makes me think of is, uh, like, so much of the work I think that has happened in public over the past three years, definitely since the process started, is how we are uncentering uh, what is dominant, or like sort of dismantling what what becomes dominant in whose world. And Clint, you are sort of pushing us, and Brittany and Sam. Everybody's been pushing to to reimagine what is dominant in a given context. And there are some skills that you need to navigate, like inner city Baltimore, that are different thing you need to navigate. You know, your time at Harvard or Brittany, your time at WashU or or Sam, your time at Stanford. Right, like a different set of skills you need, and how do we uh, validate those in a way that like help people see that they have skills and that they. That the experiences that they bring with them are valid in in our resources, too,
3: yeah, and I think this is really important for educators as well, right? Because I think it can be very easy uh, for folks who are educating young black and brown youth to uh, to imply either you know to imply or to say explicitly that uh, the culture and the language and the experiences that they bring into the classroom. Um, have no place there, or that they're not worth anything. And I think what we have to do is say, you know, it's important for you to know Shakespeare. It's important for you to learn Thoreau. It's important for you to uh, study transcendentalism and postmodernism, and to be exposed to to these uh, sort of broader set of ideas. Uh, but that doesn't mean that uh, that Shakespeare is more important than not. That doesn't mean that uh, the opera is a um, more important uh, cultural experience than going to, to your favorite hip-hop concert or like creating a dance with your friends that go viral online, right? I think so it's important to, again, tell young people that they can have both of those things at once and that certain experiences and certain ways of navigating the world are appropriate and it simply depends on the context. But we can do that without uh, ignoring or sweeping aside or dismissing Uh, the very real and valuable experiences that so many of our young people uh, bring to classrooms and into their homes every day.
1: Cool. Now my piece of news is that in Louisiana and Oregon, but we'll just focus on Louisiana because I was just in Louisiana uh, for second degree murder. If you're convicted of second degree murder and you are found guilty, uh, that one of the penalties, the harshest penalty is life in prison and to get life in prison you actually only need 10 of the 12 jurors to agree. You don't need a unanimous jury to send you to life in prison in Louisiana. And I did some research, and this is the same in Oregon, and both laws in Oregon and Louisiana came up around the same time. I think in Oregon, though, it's actually in the Constitution, so it's harder to get out. Uh, came up in the context of the KKK. So it was during the period where uh, black people uh, black people and people who were mixed were starting to sit on juries and, they, and the KKK and white citizens councils didn't want them to have any power with regard to the criminal justice system. So they made it 10 instead of 12. So with the idea that there would never be that many black people or that many mixed people, non-white people on juries, so the white people would always be able to, uh, to sentence people to to life in prison if they wanted to. Um, and I think that that is uh, wild and fascinating that it is uh, only two states that have it like that. When I think about things that don't make the public conversation, but would have a huge impact on people's lives, this is, is one of those things.
4: So this is fascinating in, in a couple of ways. One is you know the legacy of it. You know, as you said, DeRay, you know, these laws came about in a, in a period of time that um, was really the, the imposition of Jim Crow. Um, and they're still in place, right? And they still have the type of impact that was intended. So when you look at incarceration rates, particularly for Black people, um, those rates are through the roof. If you're talking about Oregon or if you're talking about uh, Louisiana, Louisiana has the highest incarceration rate of any state. Uh, and Oregon imprisons Black people at a higher rate than than almost any state. Um, and, and, you know, you can trace that directly back uh, to the types of decisions that were made. Um, by the people who really helped impose Jim Crow in those states um, following Reconstruction. It also reminds me of, you know, when we look at state after state, particularly in the South, but, you know, know, as you can see with Oregon, not only in the South, um, some of those Jim Crow laws are still in place, and not only in, in Louisiana, but also like in Florida, for example, you know, the Constitution, the Florida Constitution of 1868, you know, enacted right after abolition of slavery in you know, literally that constitution includes the provision that disenfranchises black people. Um, it disenfranchises folks with felony convictions permanently, which leads to one in four black people today being disenfranchised. So there are these laws that are still in place. They still have an incredible, uh, incredibly harsh uh, effect on our
3: lives today. And, you know, these are Jim Crow laws and they, they're they still in place. Yeah, I've talked about before how I think the idea of life without parole is is completely ludicrous. I mean, I think the idea that we put human beings in cages for the rest of their lives and give them no opportunity uh, to ever get out is is completely misaligned with any notion of justice that I believe in. Uh, I think that if people stepped, you know, Duray, you were talking about how you uh, went and visited a prison, uh, you, you know, earlier today or, or yesterday, um, the feeling of being inside a prison reinforces the the sort of agency that is stripped away. From people, and the idea that, like, there are a certain group of people inside of that space who will never leave that space. And I don't think we really ground the conversation in that often enough. It is putting human beings in a cage. And in the case of Life Without Parole, saying you will never, ever get out. You know, Brian
2: Stevenson talks about um, slavery never having ended, but it merely evolving into the very kinds of things we're talking about right now. This reminds me, Clint, of what we talked about a couple of weeks ago about if we have the courage to actually envision a world without prisons, how we would have to value people differently, how we would be forced to rehabilitate people differently, how we would be forced to have different conversations about safety for everything from victims of gun violence to victims of abuse. Um, I think that it's a necessary conversation because the notion that we can simply throw people away um, is something that we should all be disturbed by. And yet, because we have been so ingrained in the idea that safety is locking people up and throwing away the key, um, it, it's a much harder conversation to have. And, and, and I will say, um, especially as a woman, that, that I do find that conversation challenging. There are certain crimes that I'm more willing to contemplate not seeing a great deal of jail time or any jail time at all versus other crimes. Um, When I think of crimes of sexual abuse, domestic abuse, um, crimes against children, um, murder, it is much harder to, um, to actually discuss that concept. And yet I think that if we don't push ourselves to talk about what a world without jails and a world without walls could really look like, we're not actually going to advance beyond the kind of incremental or minuscule changes we've been making, um, if we've been making those changes at all, because, as has already been shared, a lot of these laws are, are quite old and still remain on the books.
1: That's the news. Andy Slavitt, former head of Obamacare for the past three years, is here to give us an update on health care. Andy, what is going on with health care?
5: Well, you always have your podcast on a very busy night, and tonight uh, was the night that The Senate finally came to grips with the fact that it doesn't have the votes to pass to repeal the ACA in its current form.
1: So what is, what's the new plan?
5: Well, the new plan is that the Trump team and Senate leadership met. They just came out with a statement which says that they're now going to bring to the floor what's known as a repeal and delay. That is a full repeal of the ACA, every single element of it. And that wouldn't take effect for two years. That's that's what they're now going to bring to the floor.
1: And what is what would be the consequence of a full repeal? I, you know, so we've been talking so much about Trump Care, which is not a full repeal, correct? Correct. What what's a full repeal look like?
5: A full repeal basically says that everything that's in the ACA, all of the coverage gains that were made in the ACA, would would go away. Now they would have it on a ticking time bomb, so that it wouldn't take effect for two years, and the idea would be to pressure the Democrats into sometime in those two years voting for a replacement plan and having that replace the ACA. Now, that's not realistic, uh, and that would never happen, uh, but nonetheless, it would accomplish a couple things for the Republicans. It would honor their promise that they believe they made to the base, that they'd repeal the ECA, it would it would get the enormous tax cut passed, and it would attempt to shift the pressure to the Democratic Party.
1: And when would this vote happen, if it happens at all? Well, we don't know yet. Uh, it could
5: happen uh, this week, it could happen next week. But I think what is uh, is also really important is that the people who have been doing such a good job getting us to a point where we've gotten to right now make it really plain and clear that that this is just unacceptable. And I believe that most, I would believe that many Republicans know that this is unacceptable. Many Republicans have gone on record to say this is unacceptable. Um, But I think it's, it's critical that people not take today as a victory, take it as progress. But not as complete victory. Uh, it's time to finish the job by making sure Congress knows that this is not acceptable.
1: And isn't it true that some of the Republicans who wouldn't support Trump Care weren't supporting it because it wasn't actually harsh enough, that it wasn't repealing enough?
5: That's exactly right, Dre. In fact, the two votes that came tonight to say the no votes against Trump Care actually came from senators that were more conservative. That felt that that healthcare wasn't doing enough to end coverage and reduce cost.
1: That is so wild. So, what should we be looking forward to this week and, and early next week?
5: I think right now, the most important thing is that there is no let up. Um, we're so close. We're so close to sending the message that you can't just willy nilly take away healthcare for millions of Americans. Uh, but remember, Right now, as we're talking, there are men sitting around the White House, and I do mean men, who have as their goal still to end Medicaid and to take health care away from millions of people. And they have a lot of tools. In fact, even if they don't succeed in Congress, there's a lot of things that they can do just using administrative powers of the office, executive, executive privileges that can take away care from people. So the next few days are going to be incredibly important to, I think, in my mind, put a final defeat on the legislative process. And if we do that successfully, the the good news is that it's quite possible that we could have Democrats and Republicans finally sitting down together, working on putting something together. In fact, John McCain actually issued a statement saying now is the time for Democrats and Republicans to sit down together. And so out of this, that's the kind of thing we ought to be encouraging.
1: And what do you think would come from Democrats and Republicans sitting down together?
5: Look, if you do this thing the right way, what you do is you have hearings, you have experts, you look at the real issues, you look at things like prescription drug costs, the drive. Which drive the cost of healthcare are very high. You look at all the people that aren't getting care that should, and you find new ways to do it. And you spend more time. You spend a year, maybe even a little more than a year, but you get to you forge some sort of compromises on how to make improvements. And you know that's the way we've historically done things up until this administration. Um, that's the way we tend to make better laws. Uh, that's the way that people in the country tend to get involved. And while we never get it perfectly, we can make progress. And for the millions of people out there who, over the course of the last few weeks and months, have said, hey, wait a minute, why don't we have universal coverage? Why don't we have some access to health care for everybody? I think this could end up being a real turning point, but it won't be a turning point until we finally finishing defeat this care beast once and
1: for all. Well, thanks, Andy. And, uh, you know, the news just broke uh, Monday night. So thanks for keeping us posted.
5: I'm glad you could be the first to report it.
6: Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save
1: the people's coming.
6: Pod Save the People is brought to you by a Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian-approved and ready to eat in just two Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 And use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp.
1: Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from... Work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash people.
0: The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories.
1: And here is my conversation with Valerie Jarrett, the most trusted advisor to President Obama during both of his terms in office. Valerie, it is great to have you on Pod Save the People.
7: Thank you, D-Ray. I've been looking forward to our conversation. I
1: love it. I'm interested in a a lot of things. I want to start with what what does it feel like to be out of the White House right now that you spent, you were there from day one to the end. How many people were actually there the whole time?
7: That's a good question. I don't know how many of us. There were a fair number, but I'm the only one that served in that senior advisor capacity for all eight years. And I knew going in that if the president would have me, I would want to stay for the duration. I can't imagine having missed one minute of that unique opportunity. Uh And so I guess I'm going through the natural stages of uh, transition, first sleeping a lot and then just reflecting on... Uh, So much that changed around the country and the world during those eight years. And then the work ahead. And I'm spending a lot of time, as you know, focusing on issues that I care a lot about, like criminal justice and gender equity and civic engagement. And so, in a sense, that helps because I feel that you don't have to be in the White House to do the people's work.
1: So you had never been in the White House before? You'd never been in a role in the White House before? Oh, goodness, no. I'd only been
7: to the White House, I think— Two times I had a cousin, uh, Anne Marchand, who worked for President Clinton, and she took me there once for a behind-the-scenes tour, and then I went to her goodbye party, and that's it. Those are the only times I'd ever been to—no, actually, one other time under President Clinton I visited for a party. Uh, That was pretty exciting.
1: What did you—I have to imagine that you learned so much in those eight years, that you grew so much in those eight years— Um, What are some things that you learned that you just didn't know before, either about the way systems work, about issues that you were like, wow, I didn't know this was, I I had no clue the scale of this issue was this issue or, or the power of the presidency?
7: Well, that's a big question. So lots in terms of the nuts and bolts. I had spent a lot of time working with the federal government from my positions at state and local government in Chicago. And so I'd seen it in a sense as the recipient of federal funds and had a lot of problems with how the federal government was organized. But I didn't just probably appreciate just how complicated the bureaucracy is um, until uh, joining the administration. I think I thought that uh, the president of the United States would have The ability to really drive Congress in a way that, as you know, the Republicans in Congress made up their mind very early on that they weren't going to work with us. And I was um, remarkably disappointed with how hard it was to motivate them to try to put their short-term political interests to the side and really focus on what was best for the country, particularly if you think, Ray, of everything that was happening in our country when President Obama took office. The banks were on the verge of the collapse. We were losing 750,000, 800,000 jobs a month. Millions of people were losing their homes. People were seeing their retirement savings evaporate overnight. And so when we heard that Senator McConnell said like his number one issue was to make sure that President Obama didn't get reelected, I thought, well, Really, of all the things that we have on our plate, both domestically and on the foreign policy stage, how could that possibly be? And it took me a while to really appreciate that um, short termism that you see here in Washington all too often.
1: And to so many of us, you are like the we saw you as like the friend in chief, the advisor in chief in the White House, the the confidant. Um, what what was your day? What did that What did that look like?
7: What exactly was it that I did with my day, huh? Yeah. Well, we started the day with uh, senior staff meetings with Dennis McDonough, the chief of staff, and his predecessors, a small group of senior team. And then we would have a bigger meeting with the senior team and really talk about what was happening in the course of the day, what our events for the day would be, what the president was trying to accomplish for that week, uh, as well as some long-range planning. And then I would meet with my teams and really say, these are the marching orders, these are the hot-button issues that we have to attend to. Uh, And then what I loved about my day is is that I it was such a broad range of people who I had a chance to meet with uh, and a whole host of policy topics. And so no one day was like another day.
1: And how did your relationship with President Obama change over time? I have to imagine that both of you being new to such different roles, him as President of the United States, you as senior advisor, you there from the beginning, him obviously there from the beginning, Uh that you both had to face a set of issues that that were new, a set of challenges that were new, a set of people and experiences. So how did that relationship change over time or grow or get tested?
7: It's a good question. So first of all, I met uh, the president and first lady 26 years ago. So we go back to 1991. In fact, July of 1991, I met them when I was trying to recruit then Michelle Robinson to come and join me in the mayor's office in Chicago. And she was so impressive. And I looked at her as she was such an old soul. She asked such smart questions in the interview and I made her a job offer basically on the spot. And so wisely she said she wanted to think about it. And then she and I were talking a few days later and she said, my fiance doesn't think this is such a good idea. So I'm like, well, who's your fiance? (laughs) (laughs) And so she said, well, his name is Barack Obama. He started his career as a political, as a community organizer. And he may disagree with Mayor Daly and then where does that put us? And so he was wondering if you'd have dinner with us. So the three of us had dinner. And I raise that because I think the longevity of our relationship, um, as it is in all relationships, means that by the time we got here, it had been tested, it had endured this, the length of time. I you know, I remember when they married and my daughter was I think like six when they met and she's 31 now. And I remember when their children were born and all of our different career paths that we've taken has various uh, campaigns for office. And so we knew each other really well and we trusted each other. We respected each other. We loved one another. And I think that that's the solidity, the solidification of that relationship happened before we came here. And so that made this change a lot easier. I will say I teased him when he offered me the job because I said, well, I've been the older one and the mentor. Now you're saying I have to work for you? And he said, well, I am going to be the president of the United States. (laughs) So how bad could that be? Um, uh, But I I share this with you and your audience. It feels like it's just you and I chatting without your audience as well. You never know how someone's going to be in a position until they're in it, particularly something new. And I had complete confidence that he had the integrity and the rigor and the intellect and the compassion and empathy to be a really great president. But it wasn't until we were actually in the White House and I saw him in action that I really began to have this full appreciation for his ability to stay singularly focused on you, the American people, and to take that long view and to be able to go through an enormous amount of scrutiny and criticism and challenge to get to that kind of true north. And he just never disappointed me. Didn't mean we always agreed on every single issue. You shouldn't. And he encouraged people to push back and come up with new ideas. And part of what he created as a manager was a safe space where everybody on the team could express themselves. But I always knew he never lost that focus. And I was um, really impressed with his groundedness and his ability to take all that incoming. And part of being a leader is you got to take a lot of pain And recognize that your pain pales in comparison to the people you're trying to help.
1: If you had uh, four more years or two more years or three more years, uh, what would you have liked to do?
7: Yeah. Well, we ask ourselves that a lot. And I will say one of uh, President Obama's strategies, which was a good one, is at the beginning of each term, he really did map out, this is what I want to get done. Really, every two years, he would write on a piece of paper, these are the priorities and let's put them in order and let's keep focused on that. You've got to respond to a lot of incoming, but let's not lose sight of what we want to try to get done. And so at the end, you look back quite naturally and you say, what was the work unfinished? I think the uh, two biggest pieces of business for me personally were uh, criminal justice reform because we had so much bipartisan support. I think... When we left, we had counted about 80 votes in the Senate to reduce mandatory minimum sentences for nonviolent drug offenders. And everybody across the political spectrum understood that our our current system is inhumane and that you could be smart on crime but not, um, not lose sight of the goal, which is to keep as many people out of the system as possible, make sure that they have a good education and job and opportunities. And if they do get caught up and they earn a second chance— Give them the tools to have a successful second chance and make sure they have whatever it is that they need. And then give them a job. Reunite them with their family. Let them become members of society. And it just seems so obvious. And I was so frustrated that, again, politics got in the way. And... The vast majority of people who are incarcerated are not at the federal level, so the federal legislation was just to be a template for the country, and I'm heartened to see a lot of activity around the country. I was just up in Connecticut with Governor Malloy, who had a conference on criminal justice, and he's already putting in place bail reforms and is raising the um, age for minors to be tried to. Um, doing a lot of really good reform work there. And so I'm spending a lot of time at the state and local level on that. Um, the other area where I just um, am very frustrated we were unable to get legislation through is just keeping guns out of the wrong hands. And you know, I'm from Chicago, and you see what's happening in Chicago, and there's a whole range of reasons why the violence is what it is, but it doesn't help to have a state next door like Indiana that has such lenient gun laws. And people just drive across, you know, it's 15 minutes from Indiana into the middle of Chicago and open up a truck and just pass out guns. How can that happen in our country? We, and we know where these gun shops are. So why can't we do something about that? So that was disappointing. Um, the other final initiative I'll mention is immigration reform. There was bipartisan support. And I remember when Cantor lost, like everything went down the drain, how could one person's loss change the whole psyche of Congress? And it would have been good for the economy, it would have been stabling, stabilizing for so many families who live in great fear. Um, it would have been the right thing to do and it would have it would have made our country stronger. We've always been a nation of immigrants. So those it was are Cantor's
1: loss that that really tanked that. It
7: really did. It really did. I think it it spooked the house. And before that, um, Speaker Boehner had said we would move forward after those initial uh, primaries were over. And I think when he lost, the kind of the will went away. And then, you know, in this time you're always in an election cycle. And so finding that sweet spot when they have the courage to actually do something important and right is uh, fleeting. And and those were three where I really thought we should have um, been able to get them. Done and behind us on the legislative branch. And then you know, continuing to improve our education system, making sure that everybody has that opportunity to grow up in a safe environment and not be at risk for any reason, every young child having a chance to have that dream. I mean, those are those are the goals you come in with, and you know you'll never perfect our union in eight years, but um we'll just have to continue that work as I said from the outside.
1: What are you running for office?
7: I'm going to be supporting you in your next run for office. <laughs> it's so funny you would ask me that question. I, lo- I so enjoy seeing young people with that bug and that spirit. I don't know if you know Michael Tubbs, who's the mm-hmm. mayor of Stockton. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, oh, he's, he's, I met him when he was still at Stanford oh, wow. in the president's first term. And he came up to me and he said he was thinking about wanting to intern at, up on the Hill. And I said, well, why wouldn't you intern in the White House? And so he applied and he, Received an internship at the White oh, House, wow. and he always said to me, I'm going to run for office one day. And the fact that he's actually the mayor of Stockton awesome. just makes me so happy. So I'm really interested in finding those young, so you're not running. extraordinary people. I don't think so. I don't think so. I've, I have spent about half my career in public service and half in the private sector. I often say that my worst days in the public sector, and I've had some bad ones, We're still better than my best days in the private. And so public service is in my spirit. And I want to um, continue to help in working, for example, with President Obama's Obama Center and this platform for engagement I described to you at the beginning. So that's really where I think my heart is right now.
1: I remember meeting you for the first time in a small room in the... Um it wasn't the White House; it was in the Eisenhower, EEOB, the EEOB, yes, the
7: old Executive Office Building, yes. named after Eisenhower.
1: That building, and uh, we were pushing you on what the White House is doing on policing. Yes, and I say that because, and you were also, in obviously, every meeting we have with the President, and and we we talk to your team often about the protests around the country. And there were so many people, and I remember the last meeting we had with the president. I just got out of jail in Baton Rouge around the same time, and I was very frustrated. Uh, and the governor of Louisiana was in the room, and I remember it was like, oh. uh, "And there were so many of us who felt like the administration was uh, acknowledging the issue, which was really important, but wasn't moving as quickly or enough or as aggressively." Um, And as somebody who works in systems, I understand the systems are like hard to move quickly because they are systems. But what do you say to the people who feel like we had this incredible moment of a black uh, president? We had a, a black woman like you as senior advisor. We had a attorney general, two attorney generals who like who had lived experiences that were deeply indicative of the American condition uh, and still, things didn't move as quickly as people wanted them to move? What as do you say quickly to
7: as people? any of us would want them to move. And I think part of um, the tough pill that you have to swallow is recognizing that change takes time. And a lot of the change that we were trying to, to put in place required cooperation at the local level. I mean, you know how many police forces are all around the country. We couldn't make 18, them. 18,000. 18,000. We couldn't make them change. And there were limitations. I mean, one of the things we explored, for example, is could we um, use the purse string to incentivize Good behavior and punish bad behavior. Well, a lot of the purses were tied up to legislation. And so the Justice Department didn't have the flexibility that we would have liked them to have had to say, OK, well, if you're going to receive federal funding, then you need to agree that you're going to put in place the recommendations that are in our task force report, because we know they were evidence-based, they were well thought out, you know, how broad the advisory board was that worked on them. We know they work. I mean, part of what frustrated us was, and you for sure, was knowing what the solutions are, and then trying to get the wheels to turn to move in that right direction, and ensuring that at the local level, there was the political will to do what needed to be done. And so we you know, you're pushing up against her. We would often say it's like a battleship and you're trying to turn that battleship. And in eight years, you can't turn it as far as you want it to go. So you're disappointed, my friend. Oh my gosh, am I disappointed that we couldn't have gotten more done. But I do think we turned over a really good template on this issue and that there are initiatives going on now, like, for example, the Arnold Foundation is spending a lot of time looking at the important work our chief data scientist scientists team did to look at you know what is the correlation between people with mental health challenges and the time they spend in the county jails and the time they spend in the public hospitals. And are we sending people to jail who really – shouldn't be in jail. They should be in a treatment or diversion program, helping develop the tools so that state and local elected officials are making wise public policy decisions. One of the statistics that we discovered, uh, which probably won't surprise you, is that of the 11 million people who cycle through our jails on an annual annual basis, they stay on an average of 23 days. Mm. Yet only 5% are ultimately convicted and sentenced to prison. So you have to ask yourself, how wise is it to house somebody for 23 days? What does it cost you? What does it cost them? They lose their job. their are single mom. They lose custody of their kids. I mean, what are the familial consequences, the societal consequences of those 23 days when if only five are going to ultimately get convicted and sentenced on, we need bail reform. And so I think a lot of that important work is going to continue to happen around the country. And so did we accomplish everything we wanted to do? Absolutely not. But did we provide some very meaningful templates and evidence-based examples of what does work? Sure. I mean, my brother's keeper came out of a tragedy. That came after Trayvon Martin and then the George Zimmerman verdict. And President Obama said we should all do some soul-searching and figure out why can't a young black boy walk down the street. And be safe, you know, ask ourselves some questions. You can't change that outcome with a law or a program or a regulation. It's a culture change. And that takes more time than I wish it took. But it happens.
1: Did you see the, the videos that went viral of the police killing people like Laquan McDonald? Of course I did. Chicago I watched and... Laquan
7: McDonald. It t- you know, I'll tell you. It took me, I want to say, at least over a day before I could watch it, after it was public. And I knew I had to. I felt a responsibility to watch it, but I knew what it would do to me. And then I saw it over and over and over again. And I will tell you, every time I've seen it, I feel like it was the first time. So sure, I've watched all of those.
1: Did you share those with the president?
7: Oh, he saw them. Of course he saw them. Yeah, we all watched them. I mean, you— You can't not watch something like that. And I think that a lot of conversations about this, internally and externally, I think there were a lot of people who were um, so stunned. And then there were a lot of people who were horrified, but not stunned. Right? My guess is you were horrified, but But not stunned. stunned. And I think a lot of people have been lulled into this false sense of um post-racialism. But we talk a lot about you know the talk that every black family has with their sons. I can't tell you how many people have come up to me who weren't black who said, "I didn't know about the talk." And I said, "Well, because we don't talk about the talk outside of the black community because it's it's embarrassing. It's. I mean, why should we have to tell our boys that they have to behave differently, right, than anyone else? But we do. And the fact that that's now out and we're talking about it more openly, I think is a good thing.
1: What did it mean for you, either in hindsight now or, or in the moment, to be a black woman and to be in this incredibly influential role, to know that uh, there's some kids who don't know a world without a black president, don't know a world without a Valerie Jarrett as the— senior advisor to the president. Um, what? How do you process what I would think is both the responsibility of that, the weight of that, the sort of honor of that, maybe the fear of that?
7: All of the above. Whenever you're a first, there's Were an added... Were you the added... first black
1: woman senior advisor?
7: Yes. Now, I will say um, Condi Rice was national security advisor, which obviously a very senior position, but first senior advisor, yes. Uh, and same, obviously, first black president. So... You feel a certain level of responsibility that you don't. You don't want to mess it up because you don't want to make it harder on the second or the third or the fourth. Uh, but it's also just an honor and something that you know you're gonna. If you have the, if you have that gold ring, you want to make the best of every single day. And I woke up every day terrified, knowing I'm old enough to know that eight years is short and it could have been four. And so making sure that every single day we did something to be a force for good. And trying really hard to be a role model to, uh, not just little black girls out there, but for everybody so that they would get used to seeing people who look like us in these positions of great responsibility. Um, somebody shared with me that their, uh, four-year-old drew a picture of Secretary Clinton. This is in the campaign and colored her brown. And the mom said, well, well, why did you call her brown? And the little girl said, we well, have to be brown to be president. It's great. Isn't that a great story? That's and I just great. thought this generation that grew up just is going to think this is perfectly normal.
1: You all are not in office anymore, and people are uh, frustrated and nervous and afraid and um, about so many losing so many things, right? Like health care, uh, the Muslim ban, right? There are all these things criminal, are justice. criminal justice. You all ran on a campaign based on hope and uh, this idea that we have not yet seen the best days of the country. Uh, there is so much fear in these moments. What do you tell people who look at you or who call you or who tweet you and say, like, what can I do? Why should I keep fighting? Well,
7: because I say change was never easy in our country. Go ask John Lewis what it was like walking across that Edmund Pettus Bridge. I mean, change was has always been brutal. And the reason why is, is that... The people who are invested in the status quo do not want to let go. They have financial reasons or they have social reasons or cultural reasons for why they don't want to see change happen. And the only way it happens is when the American people get engaged and push. And people have to recognize, and it's harder, I can say this to you since I'm so much older than you, but your generation is used to things happening very fast because that's the way it's been. The technology revolution has transformed our society in 10 years. And so you think that's how things go. Things always take a long time. And what you have to hope is on your watch, and I mean your watch as a citizen, not just while you're in the White House, is is that you do the best you can to move the baton down the road and then you hand that baton off to the next generation. And so I tell people that My optimism is still very strong. When I travel around the country and I talk to Americans of all walks of life, there are so many people who are doing extraordinary things. Ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And that gives me hope. And the question is just how can we motivate them and help them understand how to have a bigger impact? And again, that's the toolbox that we want to create. And so I say this is no time to grow weary. This is no time to let your fear or your frustration or your anger um, deflate you. It should motivate you. But people, I, I want to really be so firm with you on this. People cannot be faint at heart. Change is always hard. And you just you have to get up every day and you have to just don't don't let them win by wearing us down. We cannot do that.
1: Do you think that we'll ever get reparations or or something akin to a systemic correction to intentional systemic wrongdoing targeted to marginalized people?
7: I am pessimistic about that. Look, we couldn't get Congress to just appropriate enough money so every child could have a quality early childhood education. We spend all this money on our prisons and we can't make sure that children, all children get off to the right start where we know that every dollar we spend on early childhood education saves us $7 down the line. I mean, there's a direct evidence-based correlation between that investment. So so I tend to think that if we could fix the school system, um, I'm confident we can compete. I'm confident that we could be entrepreneurial and I think that – I also think a factor that we don't talk enough about but that I do, I do try to emphasize is in this global marketplace, diversity is a strength. And more and more you are finding companies recognizing that the ones who are, who are most successful are the ones who have a senior team, a senior board that's diverse, senior management team that's diverse, because they're trying to compete for business all over the world. And if you're just talking to a homogeneous group of people who think just like you, you're not going to make the most prudent business decisions. Dave, what do you think? Let me push it back on you. Do you uh, think that's realistic?
1: I think it, you know, it is, uh, the, the trauma, that was intentional with regard to race is just so clear, right? As you know, and I know, right? So redlining to Tuskegee, to enslavement, like it's not, this isn't something we have to like dig really deep to be like, wow, this happened and it was a part of a plan.
7: The harm was done. Intentionally. Oh, right? absolutely. And, Absol- but but to get people to think that they have a responsibility to remedy that today, I remember hard. one particular troll, I'll never forget. He said, to me on Twitter you didn't pick any cotton and I didn't own any slaves get over it that's horrendous that is why. but there are people out there who feel that way and so the question is in light of that what are the what are the levers we have to level the existing playing field and what it means is that there are going to be some adults out there who don't get their fair share or their fair opportunity
1: I think about reparations, I think the word is a lightning rod for people, but at at the core, it's this idea of acknowledgement and repair. And I think that I am, I still believe that we can figure out acknowledgement and repair at scale. Maybe not, maybe the federal level is a real challenge, but the local and state level?
7: Well, and I think, you know, there are certainly enough local elected officials who recognize the inequities of our system. And that's what we're really talking about here is inequity and And some of it is historic inequity. Some of it is present day inequity. Um, but this this sense that that someone is going to write a check to pay for it. And that that check alone will remedy it. It won't. I mean, let's just, let's face it. If everybody were to receive a big chunk of cash, but they still couldn't get a good education, we'd be in the same problem.
1: Yeah, and I think that people even think about reparations now a, a more expansive, which you talk about with education, that like, they are, what, when we think about literacy, what would it look like to give every kid born in poverty a set of library books from birth to to senior year? If in that's high
7: school, reparations, right? yes.
1: This idea of like correction at scale, that we like, we target the people who are harmed, and then we figure out how to correct it, that is beyond the economic, because you know, you know, a check is not wealth, right? That the no. racial wealth gap is huge, and that at best might be an income, but there's some places that have done like baby bonds for kids
7: mm-hmm. um, as mm-hmm.
1: a way to like build this wealth, right? And that is a, that is its own type of reparation, so I'm interested in that. Do you think you'll ever teach? I could see you being a teacher.
7: I could easily teach. Uh, yeah, I love spending time I'm with sure young people. i you've been people. offered
1: a teaching job. Are you just I laying have low been. until you...
7: You know what? I'm taking my time. I announced today I'm going to write a book. Okay. Yeah, and do you have a so title? no, not yet, not yet. I have a in my head working title, but I haven't said yet publicly what it would be. Uh, but part of what I want to do with my book is to teach, and uh, I'm 60, which is hard to believe, and I've learned a lot in the course about leadership and the long view and true north and and how to um endure the vicissitudes of life and not give up and feel this resilience that i told you that i think is so important for young people particularly to have so i think my hope is my book will be a teaching instrument but i could also see affiliating with a university and and teaching i'm just not ready to like i'm i'm too busy like doing all the things that i really enjoy to say this is the one thing i want to do do you
1: work for the foundation
7: no i'm an unpaid advisor Oh, so
1: do you still talk to the President?
7: I office with him, so yeah, we're in the same building, uh, so yeah, I was just with him yesterday. We we're in Chicago talking about the Obama Foundation.
1: Is there a piece of advice that you've gotten that is stuck with you, either in your career in the in the use the, the White House from the president? Is there something that like sticks with you uh that was
7: yeah, yeah, never um. Well, it's kind of a two-part thing. One is color well within the lines. I got that from my father.
1: Color well within the lines. Color well
7: within the lines. What does that mean? Be honest. Be ethical. Have integrity. Uh, Particularly when it's hard. When temptation is right there, somebody early on gave me a piece of advice. Phil Cholero, he said, while you're in government, if somebody offers you something and it sounds like it would be fun, you can't do it. (laughs) Just know you can't do it. And it's public service, and public service is about sacrifice. And it's about making sure that there are no conflicts and that people never question what motivates you. Mm. And so coloring well within the lines is in that.
1: You all had so many critics— Vocal critics, less vocal critics, people jumped the fence, like there were a lot of people who were pushing, yeah, and so many things that were written about you, written about President Obama, how did you how did you deal with that like did you did you read it all? Did you respond to people? I know that you you all did some off the record things or you you brought people in like how did
7: look Two things. One, we had to earn people's trust. And we reckon, as I said early on, I learned that takes time and that takes effort and it doesn't happen overnight. And there are a lot of people who started out um, protesting or being critical of us who, in the end, we worked really closely with. And that's very satisfying to me to have known that we earned their trust. There are some people who, no matter what we did, were going to be critical. And you have to learn to tell the difference. You've got to learn to be able to Tune out the noise and be grounded. You have to. You have to know who you are. I mean, I was raised by two parents who instilled very clear values in uh, and in me, and raised me to um, work hard and be confident and listen and exercise the kinds of kind of moral compass that they thought was um, that they thought was right. And if you know that and you have your feet planted firmly on the ground, that makes you more resilient. I always had a safety net of people who I know knew me and loved me and cared about me and nurtured me and who I could call. And they weren't interested in whether I worked in the White House. They wanted to hear about what was going on in my the rest of my life. And so you have to, I mean, this is kind of one of those life lessons is that you have to learn to nurture yourself and to not... You can't buckle. You cannot. There's no better revenge than success.
1: Cool. Well, thank you for coming to Pod Save the People. I've can been, been your, so
7: looking forward to this. It was as much fun as I hoped it would be. your friend
1: of the pod, and hopefully we'll see you again soon. I hope you have me back. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast, a village in India where everyone's name is a song a boiling river in the Amazon, a spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode.
0: The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories.
1: And now my conversation with R.T. Ryback, the former mayor of Minneapolis. R.T. Ryback, <laughs> America's mayor. Thank you for being on i say the
8: People. America's washed up mayor, but I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm proud to take the term. How long were you mayor of Minneapolis? Uh, Twelve years. 12 years? Uh, in mayor terms, you measure it in dog years. So it was a lot longer than that. But uh, but it was wonderful.
1: And you were not term limited. You chose not to run again,
8: Right. And uh, I was... Um, after, as I was approaching sort of the end of it, I was uh, the 12th year, I was really, really focused on the biggest issue I thought in my community, which is equity. And the biggest piece of that was education equity. And so uh, I was going to run for a fourth term and be all about close the achievement gap. But uh, I realized that when you're a mayor, bridges collapse, tornadoes hit, cops do things that create controversy, all this kind of stuff. So you never get to control your agenda. So instead, I Off to run something called Generation Next. It was uh, a collaborative table. There are are many around the country now that are focused on getting all the players united on creating more opportunity for kids of color in school. So I did that for a couple of years and I'm still involved with that very much. Um, But now I'm running the community foundation.
1: I remember when I lived here in Minneapolis and I worked at the school system, one of the things that shocked me was how intense the achievement gap was between white students and students of color here that there are over 100 languages spoken in, in the schools in Minneapolis. What do you make of why the disparities are just so great in a city that is is ostensibly really wealthy, right? It's not a it's right. not a city that is generally in poverty.
8: Almost every single thing is going right with Minneapolis except the number one thing, which is the fact that there is a huge gap between haves and have-nots and it breaks along racial lines. So I guess if there's good news is we know what our problem is. Uh, the bad news is it's not simple. I mean, there's not a single thing to unpack it. But the reason I wanted to just dive into that is that I couldn't, after 12 years, give you a clean, clear answer. There's racism, there's uh, geographic segregation, there's historic trauma, there's all sorts of issues at the root of it, but there's not one ingredient for racial gaps any more than there's one ingredient to bake a cake, and there's no one ingredient to get you out of it. So what we did with, um, with schools is really get superintendents and foundations and families and everything together and kind of really peel back the onion. So we dive into early childhood and look at what is the best spot we can intervene in literacy and math and all of that. And so created this battle plan, if you will, public-private uh, plan. And and it's, we're making some progress. Um, you know, it's never fast enough uh, for me. Have you seen the, the, the needle move? There are some that you do see moving. Uh, graduation rates are starting to go up. And that's really, really great. There are places, though, that I think are deeper in impact than the interventions we've had in graduation. Uh, we have something called the Northside Achievement Zone. It's it's probably the most successful model uh, off the Harlem Children's Zone outside of uh, that, and it's, it's doing really remarkable work on early childhood. That's one of many different things that are happening. You will not see that quote-unquote pay off for a while. The data is good, showing good results, but um, the problem people have is that they often want to look for this one big thing. So some people say, let's jump in on early childhood and make sure every kid is ready for school. Yeah. And then let's jump in on kids who are um, falling out of the system and are slipping into criminal justice system. Yes. You know, but you can't, you have to walk and chew gum. And because there's no one single thing it's. And so that's, I think what, I've tried to do both my work at Generation Next now, and I'm running the Minneapolis Foundation, is to give people the sense of how we can go deeper. But I think a final point is, um, that is the gap. But also, this community, more than almost any in the country, has lived the values of the Statue of Liberty. We're imperfect, but this has been a center for humanitarian relief. It's been a place that has welcomed uh, the largest Somali population outside of Mogadishu and Um, Now the Korean population and Tibetans and Liberians. The Hmong population. Absolutely, the Hmong population. And what that's meant is that we have more potential global fluency than almost any community in America. And that's true for immigrants, but it's also true for an African-American kid growing up in North Minneapolis who leaves his neighborhood to go to a school in a predominantly white neighborhood and then downtown to their summer job. Their cultural fluency is deeper than mine as a white guy. And so we're really selling this idea that, that we're building a culturally fluent community that's not just about, quote unquote, opening doors, but about saying somebody like me who is a 61-year-old white man won't be a dinosaur because I am connected more with communities that are different than me, which is too rare for people my age.
1: How about, somebody recognized you walking by it did. It? Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> she like she like did a double take.
8: Yeah. Um it's kind of like being the mascot in town, you know, I'm Twins right. Bear and what so up Mayor?
1: There was recently a measles outbreak in in Minneapolis, one of the largest in the history of Minnesota and notable because we had all been eradicated measles in America in the early 2000s. Why do you think what what do you make of that?
8: Well, one of the the issues on that is that there, are, um, there were some rumors that went through the Somali community where there was extraordinarily high uh, autism, that uh, immun- immunization was tied to that. That's false. And yet for some people, if you can imagine going to another country in a strange culture, and the people from most like you um, said something that, to that, you wouldn't necessarily doubt them. And so one of the things we've had to do is to make sure that public health officials and trusted community members and all are putting out this idea, this this idea that the immunization causes autism.
1: Now, shifting a little bit to talk about national issues, it is, I've heard that you are close friends with President Obama.
8: I wouldn't call it close friends. He's been super nice to me. Um, I was the first mayor in the country to endorse him. Really? I was very involved in the draft Obama movement. And, um, when sort of way back, he'd given his speech in, uh, at the convention in Boston. So obviously he was on the radar, but it was during the time when I, you know, when you'd read the bios that he was sort of wrestling with Michelle about whether they should do this or not. And I just had a chance to, you know, do a quick meeting with them. And I just said, it's not often that a single person with a single act can change the world, but you can. And, he kind of laughed and he said, well, that's really heavy. (laughs) But um, from that time, I uh, worked with him and I never asked for anything. I never wanted to go to Washington. I never wanted a job. I just wanted the president I've wanted all my life and I got it. And um, one of the cool things about him is he never really forgot. And um, that's, you know, that's a very cool part of him.
1: Did you get to talk to him before he left office?
8: I did. Um, He um, was kind enough to invite me in for just to say a quick uh, goodbye, uh, on the Friday before he left. And, um, it was a really tough moment, frankly, because, you know, I'm walking down front of the white house and here's this reviewing stand where I just remember the Obama sitting and now was being set up for Donald Trump, who, you know, I have no respect for. And, um, I it was really hard. And so I walked into his office and, um, I gave him a letter my wife had written Hmm. about that night in Des Moines and what it felt like when they, he won the caucuses and they announced the now the next first family of the United States of America. And, um, I was overwhelmed at the time, but when I told him then what is he's leaving office, I just lost it because I just felt so hopeless, you know, having gone by this reviewing stand for Trump and all this. And he just like, grabbed me on the shoulder and said real intently, we are not done. And he just walked, he said, I'm going to take a vacation, then we're right back at at it. And it was so powerful and really kind of lifted me. And last night I saw the uh, Kennedy uh, Profiles and Courage Awards where he gave a speech and, you know, no, he is not done and he is focused on that. But the fact of the matter is, it was never about Barack Obama. And it was always about a mo- much broader movement. That's the way he saw it. That's where he and I connected. And um, it shouldn't be about Barack Obama now. He is a piece of the ecosystem, but we all created Barack Obama, the successful president. And we all have to create that in a broader way because we shouldn't look for heroes. We should look in the mirror.
1: I like that. You know, I remember when, when I met him the first time in the Roosevelt Room uh, for our first meeting, and he was as gracious as people thought yeah, he was, yeah. but also more inquisitive and, and pushed in a way that I, I didn't think came across like in the media Yeah. as well. I got arrested in Baton Rouge, and right after that, there was a meeting with President Obama, uh, unconnected things, but in my head, I will never forget being in jail for the 17 hours and then having to go to the White House. And he was, you know, the advocates, we were pressing for the DOJ to use the funding power to hold police departments accountable. Right. And he was pressing everybody to understand that more in a way that was really impressive. And like yeah. people just didn't get to see that that much. When you think about Trump, <coughs> yeah. um, and there is a healthcare plan that would do real damage, there's a burgeoning tax plan that could also do a lot of damage. What is your assessment of either how we got here or like what the work ahead looks like?
8: People vote for something. And there's a lot wrong with Donald Trump, but that's not a reason to elect a president and um so I think that's one of the issues. Um, I do think, by the way um that there was um bizarre uh terrifying uh intervention from Russia in sophisticated ways we're only beginning to understand with the tacit encouragement at the very least of the trump administration uh or the trump campaign, I mean to say um but the main issue is uh, Democrats, and have to talk about what we're for, and uh, I hope we do a better job of doing that. None of this is is just given to us. This democracy thing, I, you know, I was really I was um, listening to this interview of Condoleezza Rice with her new book, and she was, you know, saying she's obviously a deeply accomplished person. And I respect that part of it, but she was saying something like. um, well, you know, this D- this uh, democracy is, it's it's in our DNA here in America. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. This is not something that we have these freedoms. And there was a point right after the election when I thought, frankly, Trump would be more effective. I'm glad, frankly, he hasn't been that effective. Right. But I was thinking, okay, this is what it could feel like <laughs> to really watch this slip away. And I believe, you know, When you look at the civil liberties issues, when you look at the immigration issues, when you look at the attacks on the media and all of that, no, this is not part of our DNA. And yes, you have to fight for it. And we shouldn't convince people that somehow this will all go away because we magically are Americans and magically we have democracy. Um, I can see a pretty easy slip into totalitarianism in this country. And that scares the hell out of me.
1: There are a lot of people that I know, that I talk to, that I'm around, who have given up on the party because they feel like the party has given up on them, right? That they voted their entire lives and they went to the meetings and they da-da-da-da-da and like the world is still the place that it is for them.
8: What what do you say to those people? Well, I should give some context. You know, I, um, one of the things that Obama asked me to do was to be vice chair of the Democratic National Committee. And I wound up being the whistleblower on Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who I thought by the way, when we go through some of the reasons why that campaign was lost, I think she deserved a lot of blame, frankly. But so I'm not a person who gravitates necessarily to a party, and I didn't get my party's endorsement to my third term as mayor. But <laughs> with that said, with that said the, the the history of this period of time in the United States is not about two parties abandoning people. It's about two parties with two different philosophies, and one of them was captured by A group of extremists who took the most extreme ideology possible and uh, hijacked the Republican Party. The Democratic Party um, had the majorities in the White House and Congress for um, two years. And during that time, we delivered health care to 20 million people, saved the auto industry, did the Recovery Act, which is the greenest act in the history of America, brought human rights into our foreign policy. Had the Justice Department uh, become deeply engaged in police misconduct, which is a pretty difficult thing to do, knowing policing is local, but the federal government was involved in it. Appointed Supreme Court justices who did um, have done really remarkable things, and that was in that two-year period before the um, the Congress got taken over because they Republicans successfully exploited the health care issue. So it's sort of like saying, "Oh, gee, the wind is blowing at me, so I'm going to give." give up on walking. The fact of the matter is we have a choice and we're in a dogfight for the values of this country. So I don't ask people to march in lockstaff to people. I ask them to be deeply disruptive within systems and outside of systems. But the fact of the matter is people who just said, oh, pox on all their houses, I won't vote in the election are complicit in the fact that right now Donald Trump is taking actions that means the Latino kid who's in school today is not positive whether dad's going to be home at night. Are they
1: complicit? Oh, or, so yeah. people,
8: people push and
1: say that they, why participate in the system that has not worked for them?
8: Well, I get that. If all of us can lead lives that are comfortably, um, that are comfortable with uh, changes being put in by those who are participating in the governance of the country, there's a, there's an authority That we've collectively chosen to be the federal government. We own that. If you choose not to be part of the ownership, that's your prerogative. But the fact of the matter is somebody's going to own that. So if you're really comfortable with everybody else owning that, especially when you see some of the consequences when certain people take control of that, um, I guess that's your prerogative. But as somebody who shares this planet and this um, country with you, I really ask you to think pretty damn hard about the consequences. I mean, when you think that the Environmental Protection Agency is being taken over, is being purged to people who believe in climate science. Um, so it's, you know, if, um, you know, if you live in a, in a condominium and you choose to not participate, you can't complain about, you can, but, but you do have the possibility to control what the place is like. And if you choose not to, um, you're leaving it up to all the other people. And there's some people I don't want it left up to right now get that. Donald Trump starts with it.
1: Are there any issues that you, so one of the interesting things about being an activist, especially in the wake of um, the initial protests in Ferguson and Baltimore and, and so many other cities, I've learned so much about uh, so many topics that I didn't know before, right? So from, from welfare, which I thought I understood well, and now I know much what, much right. better, or like mass incarceration or po- police contracts, things like that. Right. What issues do you think are really important that people, that don't make the national headline?
8: Well, first off, I have to give you and many, many other people tremendous credit for pushing um people on the issue of police and accountability and culture. Um it was the toughest thing I had to do as mayor, and it's a hugely important issue. And um I mean it's it's um I think the the it's part of this larger issue too, and it's even ties to what I was just talking about now. Common ground is incredibly important. What we choose to do together is, I think, why we are civilized people. And if you think about government and police and all of that, it's really that that all of this is really pretty simple. It's what we choose to do together that we can't do ourselves. So we've chosen that instead of you and I having guns and bars on all of our houses and, every, you know, gosh knows what else, we've chosen, or maybe in addition, we say, okay, We're going to hire this person over there to work together for our public welfare, to protect and to serve us. When that person doing that is not reflecting our values, we have to step in. That's common ground. It's the same as a physical common ground that you and I can live in our own place, but we choose to have a park where we can come together. We choose to have sidewalks where it's free for all of us. When that gets into something that we don't like, we engage in it. So I think this issue of the common ground, the common good, the common wheel—what are we doing together—is um, very much in play right now. I mean, I'm leading a foundation now. I love that work because what it is 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 really saying people have the right to do whatever they want with their money, but if they choose, it's a community foundation too. So different. We have 1,300 people with funds there. So the idea is each of them can do whatever they want. But if we go to them with ideas, if we can convene them together, if we create a common ground, that makes sense. Not everybody can be putting money into a foundation, but all of us in our own way have the ability to choose to do something larger with our life than our own individual action. And I live in a city where the most beautiful natural urban environment of any city in America, we chose not to have the lakes be privatized or the rivers or the parks, but all of it is common ground. That's un- almost unique in America. And um, it's a wonderful thing, but don't take it for granted. Like that.
1: What, so there are a lot of people who now want to run for office, right? Oh, good, like, uh, yeah. They have gotten the, the bug and the itch about being a public servant in, in a formal way. What advice do you have to those people?
8: I would say um, the most important thing to do is to do two things. Look in the mirror and listen. Look in the mirror means when people will say, and they'll ask me, you know, I'm an experienced politician. You've won some elections. What should I do? What should I do? I say, first off, be exactly who you are. And before everybody comes at you with everything else, you know, like when you were running for mayor in Baltimore, your agenda was super authentic. It didn't look like it came through a factory of some political sheen about what you're supposed to say. When people say, what am I supposed to say? I'm saying, you're the only one who can answer that. The beautiful thing right now is authenticity is the best political weapon. And um, <laughs> Trump is authentic, I guess. But, um, you know, but it all up and down the political spectrum, the thing that's going away is the free dried politician who seems to be saying what you want. And I just love all the people I see coming out who are running because they're not necessarily doing it for... Um, to follow the rules. But the listen thing is hard too, because I'm not a natural listener. I was a reporter, however, and it really trained me to, when um, I find somebody to go still enough that you can hear them, really honestly hear them. So when I knocked the city, because I had no money, I wasn't taking money from people doing business with the city. Nobody gave me a chance. So I just knocked. And at first I'd, you know, knock, knock and hey, I'm RT, right back. And here's, I give him a big pitch and it didn't go anywhere. And then I thought, wait a minute, I've done this before. I was a reporter. I walked up the doors. I listened to people and then I told their story. So do it again. And so day after day, after day, after day, I was just going around the city. I wasn't giving speeches. Nobody was paying attention to me. And I just listened and listened, actively listened. And then the, the second part that's important is to tell that story. So if you start as authentically as this is me and then you really really listen the the wisdom is not you don't have to know everything you have to know how to access the collected knowledge of people
1: and what um that makes sense and I I think about it was you know it was something it was (laughs) some parts of my door knocking was amazing yeah I think that uh that is one of the running for office made me even more committed to work of nuts and bolts organizing. Right? Yeah. That's like yeah. what it is. And it's heart.
8: Mm-hmm. What is, a, is
1: a piece of advice that you've gotten over your career that is stuck with? you?
8: I would say uh, one that I like is the saying that the world stands aside for those who know where they're going. Hmm. And when you really apply that to a lot of things, there are vacuums that are created all over the place. You know, something where something should happen and people will say, why doesn't someone or why doesn't this and that? Own the vacuum. Get jump into the place where there's a vacuum um, because I think that's important.
1: All well, righty, thanks for being on uh, Pod Save the People today.
8: Well, thanks for doing it, and you're a hugely important voice. So keep talking. I appreciate it, and, yeah, and hopefully it. you will be. Uh, <laughs>
1: hopefully you'll be back. You're a friend of the pod now.
8: Okay, that's a that's a good thing to be. Well,
1: that's it. Thanks for listening to Pod Save the People. Make sure that you rate it wherever you get your podcast, and make sure that you uh, tell a friend to listen to. Yeah.